guest this afternoon is Ned Sublett. Ned is an American composer, musician, record producer, musicologist, historian, and author. He has written many critically acclaimed books, most notably Cuba and its music, from the first drums to the mambo, also the world that made New Orleans from Spanish silver to Congo Square, the year before the flood, a story of New Orleans, and the horrific, the American Slave Coast, a history of slave breeding industry. He has been working on the ground in Cuba since 1990 and has traveled there 57 times. He is a co-creator of Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep series, heard on radio stations nationally via Public Radio International, and co-founder of Cubadisc, Q-B-A-D-I-S-C, the record label that pioneered the marketing of contemporary Cuban music in the United States in the early 90s. He recently released a new film called Tierra Sagrada, in which he is the film's producer and director. It chronicles a Santeria ceremony in West Central Cuba. And if that isn't enough, Ned just returned from a trip to the Pacific coast of Colombia and Cali, considered the salsa capital of the world, to explore Afro-Latin music of the region. Welcome, Ned. It's a pleasure to talk to you because your books have had such a meaningful impact on me. Well, thank you, Kevin. That's awfully nice of you. You know, WPKN is celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month this month. To start, I was briefly wondering if you had an opinion about the debate on whether it should be Hispanic or Latino Heritage Month, and maybe you think it's just a tempest in a teapot, or maybe not. Uh, it's one of those questions you can never get a satisfactory answer to. That's what I think. I mean, Hispanic has a clear meaning to me. It means someone who speaks Spanish and by which uh, I would qualify as Hispanic, uh, but I'm not Hispanic by birth. I had to learn Spanish. I don't qualify as Latino. Um, it's not about me. Right. <laughs> it's, you know, Latino, uh, what is Latino? A lot of people are pushing back against that identity now, uh, that, that it's a colonial identity. So I don't really have an answer to this. Okay, so from your perch as one so immersed in the music and cultures of South and Central America and the Caribbean islands, what thoughts do you have on the contributions of Latinos in the world? Well, I focus particularly on the Afro side of it. My great interest over these decades has been the African, the well, what is, came, has come to be called the Black Atlantic, the vast world that was forcibly dragged and uh, transplanted from West and Central Africa to the Americas up and down. And those of us in the United States can easily think that African American culture is the model for black participation in the new world, but Latin America offers us many different models of how African culture was maintained, adapted, and transformed in the Americas. The way I understand all of this is through music, which is, of course, along with everything else, it is a great pleasure. So, I just let my ears do the, the bulk of the work. Well, your book is very complex. I mean, it is considered uh, one of the great books if you're really interested in the subject on the history, culture, and politics of the area. And it's 
to me, it is. I mean, it's so much we could talk about. So uh, I just was wondering about the so many influences of uh, Cuban music because you take it from Africa and bring it all the way across using the, that, like you just said, the dragging uh, forcibly of all those peoples into the Americas. Yeah, the, and it happened differently, as I say, everywhere that Africans were brought. And Cuba is a particularly special case for a variety of reasons. Number one, uh, Cuba was such an influential hub in the Spanish world. Havana was the first great music capital of the hemisphere going back to the 16th century already. I'm fascinated by the dissemination of Afro-Latin music in the 16th century in the Americas and in Europe. Uh, but moving forward, Cuba was also the last place to import massive numbers of kidnapped laborers from Africa. The African trade to Cuba went on after it had been stopped elsewhere in the hemisphere. As Robert Ferris Thompson put it to me in conversation one time after 1850, when the British stopped the slave trade to Brazil, Cuba was the last place in the world still importing Africans. And they were by that point scooping up whole villages in Oyo, you know, the capital of, of the Yoruba kingdom and plopping them down around Matanzas. So this happened as late as the 1860s. By comparison, the African slave trade to the United States ended <laughs> officially and in fact, January 1st, 1808. So that period of time between 1808 and the 1860s is a huge difference. It meant for one thing that when Mongo Santa Maria was born in 1920 in the Barrio Jesus Maria, the elders in his barrio were from Africa. Hmm. And the contributions of Africa to making Cuban culture is so vast and covers so many centuries that uh, it's impossible to imagine a Cuban culture that has not been Africanized. Yeah, that's the thing about Cuba is amazing. I mean, it's had such an influence on modern music in the Western Hemisphere, and it all came via Africa. And I mean, it, it, it converged to make a creolized Cuban music with Spain, of course, but Spain and Africa aren't equivalent concepts. And not only Spain, but Spain especially. And Spain was Africanized before the Middle Passage, before Africans were being dragged across the Atlantic. Spain was already Africanized. How so? Uh, probably, prob well, probably going a very long way back. I mean, it's just across the water from North <laughs> Africa, uh, but also uh, the slave trade out of Africa to Iberia was already well underway by the time, though it wasn't in large numbers for plantation slavery, but when Columbus set out for the West, between 5 and 10% of the population of Lisbon and Seville were Black, and they were already affecting the music of Iberia. So Iberia was Africanized in, well, by multiple avenues, really, before the uh, Portuguese slave trade started bringing people to the Americas. 
So with Cuba, was the reason that Cuba's music grew so exponentially with different genres and everything is because there was different rhythms and coming out of Africa and then they were allowed to keep the drum? Whereas a lot of the other slave cultures in in America, like especially the United States, there was no drums because they were banned. That's certainly a factor. I mean, there were occasionally drums. There have been a few located in the United States or what became the United States. But yes, in Cuba, Africans were allowed under certain conditions to practice ancestral religions behind the closed doors of what were called cabildos de nación which were formalized organizations affiliated with a certain African nationality to which that uh, which didn't mean that everybody in the Cabildo was necessarily of that nationality, but meaning that that's whom they affiliated with. And these got going apparently very early in Cuba. Probably they go back to the 16th century. Uh, these Cabildos may have even existed in Spain, though I'm not real clear on that. And in the 19th century, they were flourishing. And the survivors of these uh, cabildos continue today. It, one of the things people don't realize about Cuba is how much direct African heritage can still be found in village after village, in small towns, in places, all, especially in, but not only in Western Cuba. Is that prevalent still to this day? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. That my film Tierra Sagrada, which you mentioned, is is not I should say it's not simply a Santeria ceremony. We did a trip in January 2020 in which we went to 14 Bembeis, a Bembe is a party for the gods. We went to 14 Bembeis in eight days. And I brought a filmmaker and such parts of it as we were allowed to film and release uh, wound up in the movie. Mostly it was Yoruba Santeria, but there was also a, uh, a Congo event, uh, Apollo event. To go back to your question uh, about why uh, Cuba became such a uh, hotbed of music. There are a lot of reasons, including Cuba had relative political stability, by which I mean it never broke off into separate nations the way the neighboring island of Hispaniola did, though there was at one point a movement for Eastern Cuba to secede and become a French-speaking uh, in the in years after the Haitian Revolution and to become a French-speaking polity all its own. That never happened. Uh, Cuba always, despite the vast regional differences between East and West in Cuba, they remained Cuba. They remain the people remained Cubans. They speak a single language. There and there are all kinds of shared cultural ties which have persisted all through the centuries. So that's also a very important factor. And the fact that Cuba is so large, Cuba's as big as the rest of the Antilles put together. So that allowed for a tremendous space of cultural diversity. So that there is no, with the Santeria, for example, there is no Vatican of Santeria. There is no doctrinal authority single doctrinal authority, there are a variety of practices that are related that go on all over the island. But you find, for example, in different towns, they have different drums. 
in Havana, in Matanzas, in Cardenas, you have Bata. You have Bata in Sahuala Grande, but you also have other kinds of drums that are not Bata. You have drums that look more like what we think of as conga drums. You have drums that they call tambores de guerra, which translates to war drums, uh, which should be understood, I think, in a spiritual context. Various different makes. Fernando Ortiz documented the presence of over 100 different African drums in Cuba. And what I found during my travels with groups which have allowed me to go all over the island in a way I never could have done simply on my own, we found that there's a, an astounding diversity of drums. So mm -hmm. if there's an astounding diversity of drums, imagine how different all the practices are, even while retaining the basic core elements of these religions that came from specific places in Africa to specific places in Cuba. That's what amazes me about the stuff I read in your book and elsewhere that, you know, there's just so much incredibly different things that came from different parts of Africa that are that influenced different genres in Cuba. Well, first of all, one real quick question that I don't need a long answer on, but I just want to, it's bugging me is that why Cuba was allowed to keep drums and, like, say, the United States wasn't? Well, the Anglo-American territories, not simply the United States. The Anglo-American territories were militant about prohibiting the drums because they correctly understood it as a weapon. They correctly understood drums as a system of insurgent communication, which, in the case of San Domingue, the future Haiti, proved fatal to the slave regime. But mm -hmm. beyond that, there's the simple fact that the Anglo-American territories were Protestant. And the Spanish, Portuguese, French territories were Catholic, which brought with it a whole different way of dealing with these religions. Hmm. So, in your opinion, what is the most prominent influence, let's say, that was important to the development of now what we have in modern uh, rumba and son and things like that? Well, there are two large influences, and there are not only two, but I would talk about West and Central Africa as if we want to, like, simplify it down to you know, sort of like large shaped forces, West we Africa, <laughs> West Africa, which uh, most prominently, but not exclusively, the Yoruba religion, or what is popularly called Santeria. Sometimes uh, anthropologists talk about Santo, so it can include the Daomean religion, known in Cuba as Arara, which comes from very near where the Yoruba religion comes from. And has and overlaps with it in many key concepts. And there's the Central African or Congo, where I've been arguing all along that in many ways, though the Yoruba religion is the more visible, the Congo religion is perhaps more fundamental to Cuban culture. It's been there longer. It's more widely distributed across the island. And it's uh, it's beneath it's it's the it's the fundamental platform on which I think the rest of it rests. Uh, certainly, in terms of rumba, we are talking about Congo influence, uh, the Bantu-speaking people. Which, if we if we say Central African, we can also include people from Angola, or you know the the north part of Angola being the southern part of historic Congo. 
so those two the the yoruba or the west african more broadly and the Congo, or more broadly, Central African, which also have concepts in common, but which have very differently elaborated practices, which have different cosmologies. The Congo cosmology, in particular, I find very profound and beautiful. Hmm. And the Congo, that's a pretty vast place, and a lot of slaves yes, came is. out of there. Oh, yes. Uh, the Congo was the most heavily, Central Africa was the most heavily slaved region. I mean, Angolans built Brazil, period. It was slaved early and it was slaved late. And you can feel, I went to Angola in 2012. The only time I've ever been able to go to Africa, I would have liked to have traveled more widely in Africa, but I did manage to go to Angola. And I drove from Mbansa Congo in the north. Mbansa Congo is the seat of the historic Congo kingdom, which at the time of contact with the Portuguese was the largest empire in Africa, reaching from present-day Gabon to present-day Zambia. And I drove from Mbansa Congo down to Luanda, a city established by the Portuguese just outside of the range of what Mbansa Congo could reach militarily. And you drive through rural Angola and you don't see people hardly. You realize to what extent not only the civil war that lasted for 40 years, which caused many, you know, millions of internally displaced people, but also the uh, depredations of slavery. I don't think, I haven't been to West Africa, but in, in West Africa, Everything I know about it leads me to believe that this is not what you see. You see a population that was able to replenish itself in, in a way that uh, was not possible, certainly in the part of Angola I was in. And you really see the emptiness of the landscape there, and you can still feel that hollowing out hmm. of the slave trade. That's very interesting. And, you know, I, on YouTube, there's a time lapse of the slave trade ships going from Africa to the Americas. A very informative animation. Yeah, you look at that and you get, you're astounded at, you get it. This really was huge. And they were moving lots of people in chains and killing lots of people on the way there, too. It's just, to me, it's the most impactful thing I saw about slavery. I just, over the it's, last five or six years, I've gotten from reading your book, too, about the American Slave Coast. I just, you know, people have to read this stuff. It's not to be buried because this is a very important part of what happened in the world at those times. That's absolutely correct. And it's the unknown history of the United States as well. One of the things you notice when you look at that animation is how little of the African slave trade comparatively went to North America and how yeah, early right. it cut off. That's right. Because we had a different mechanism in the United States. And, and what was that mechanism? That preceded it. <laughs> well, we, in our book, we call it the slave breeding industry. There are other less offensive names we could have given it, but uh, that's actually what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, a system that re relied on reproduction of domestically enslaved people rather than importation of kidnapped African laborers. And the um, banning of I slavery like, was sort of a, a self-serving. It, it, it stopped well, the, the bringing in the banning new of people. the slave trade. Right. The banning of the slave trade, which happened in on uh, officially January first, eighteen oh eight. That dates in the Constitution. 
Article 1, Section 9, it's the only date in the Constitution, it's pretty mind-blowing when you realize it, that the Constitution gave a 20-year window to South Carolina, is what happened, that the African slave trade could continue, because South Carolina was built on importing Africans, the economy mm -hmm. of it, and that uh, that economy had been heavily depleted in the war for independence, and the South Carolinian slave merchants wanted to restock. So during that 20-year period, especially in the years just before uh, January 1st, 1808, they went on an absolute orgy of loading up the ships as heavily, as many and as heavily as they could to bring them in. I should requalify that because the South Carolinians did not run slave trade vessels themselves, but they brought in as many as they could to the point where a vast surplus of human beings stacked up on the docks in Charleston. Charleston yeah. You can go to this place today where they died, basically in storage. It was the largest single shot of Africans was this, these last years. Now, why was the slave trade from Africa cut off in, in January 1st, 1808? And why was it in the Constitution? Well, in the Constitution, it says not that the slave trade had to end on January 1st, 1808, but that the importation could not be prohibited by Congress before January 1st, 1808. It contains not only the only date in the Constitution, but the only price. It also states that a prohibitive tax may not be laid, i.e. a tax of more than $10 per head. So both the only date and the only price in the Constitution are there. Of course, the Constitution does not use the term slave. It would be too, that would be too indelicate. They use the term importation of persons, but the meaning is very clear. And indeed, it was Thomas Jefferson, who was a disastrous president, in 1806, proactively called for Congress to have a law ready to go that would trigger on January 1st, 1808, prohibiting the importation, and he got it. Now, why did Jefferson do this? Because Jefferson lived off the value of his portfolio of slaves, as did his Virginia constituents, because Virginia was the great slave breeder, Virginia and Maryland, and South Carolina, the great slave importer. So there was actually a power struggle in the early days between Virginia and South Carolina over the slavery business. And South Carolina lost that struggle and basically turned their backs on cooperating as they had basically done all along and were the greatest uh, accelerators in the movement toward secession and the so-called civil war. We're talking to Ned Sublet. He's the author of several great books. And the one we're dipping into here is called The American Slave Coast, The History of the Slave Breeding Industry. And I recommend it to anybody who really wants to know what happened with slavery. But we're going to go back to the... I have to jump in. Co-written with my wife, Constance I'm Sublet. sorry. Yeah. That, no, yeah. I, I always, that book is by Ned and Constance Sublet. Yeah. Um, 
Sorry, Constance. <laughs> so, the, but we're going to be talking about Cuban. I mean, I'm married, married to a Cuban, so I, my brother-in-law and I talk Cuban music all the time. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's got a huge collection, and he, he, he has a question for you at the end of this thing, too. Sure. Um, Cuba and, the, and its music is the name of the book, From the First Drums to the Mambo. It is a comprehensive look at Cuban music, but you can't get away from the fact that it all was generated by this thing we're talking about slavery which was brought into cuba and i'm wondering also how this fits in with new orleans so you know because i know there's a lot of back and forth there how did america embrace a lot of this stuff without being connected to it and not allowing drums for instance in in the proper of north america because new orleans was different from the beginning new orleans first of all at the moment the United States annexed Louisiana on December 20th, 1803, there was not a Protestant church in New Orleans, nor was there a Catholic church in Boston. I think people today do not appreciate the intensity of the intolerance of Protestantism in the Anglo-American colonies and the early United States. Annexing Louisiana was a very controversial move for the colonies. Uh, Jefferson felt it had to be done and because it was essential to control the Mississippi in order to have the kind of imperial, what he uh, envisioned as an empire for liberty, which of course meant the liberty to own slaves. But New Orleans had a completely different complexion, literally, and a different culture. Uh, and being Catholic, it had a different way of dealing with the African religions. Now, in New Orleans, we had the famous Congo Square, which um, had is still there today. Uh, the, the spot has never been built on. Uh, it's a the commons is still a site of commemorations and cultural events. And if you come to uh, plug, if you come to New Orleans with us in uh, February, when I take a group, we will visit Congo Square. Congo Square had been a, um, at first a marketplace just outside the city walls, okay, where the indigenous people sold things to the uh, French colonists and then the Spanish colonists. But as Africans were brought in very quickly, they were, a key part of the marketing. They sold produce as well, and enslaved women did most of the purchasing for their white mistresses. So Congo Square was a site where people of various African origins could meet in the company of indigenous people on Sunday afternoon, which is still Black Music Day in New Orleans. Sunday afternoon is still when the second lines romp. And at a given hour, they were the authorities came in and cut it off. I tell you all this because Congo Square was opposite what is called the French Quarter, right? As the Anglo-American sector above Canal Street, so-called uptown, developed, they did not have this phenomenon. That was the Protestant part of town. They didn't have that. And this division across Canal Street continues well, to this day, New Orleans has a very strong sense of uptown versus downtown. 
and it's a fundamental part of the birth of jazz polemic about how the uh, with Plessy versus Ferguson and the collapse of three racial categories, white, mulatto, and black, into two, the people from uptown and the people from the the people of color from uptown and the people of color from downtown found themselves playing in the same orchestras. That's way too simple to describe what actually happened. I think it's broadly true. And if you want to know more about uh, early jazz in New Orleans, I always recommend my one of my favorite books about music, Thomas Brothers' Louis Armstrong's New Orleans. I don't know if I answered your question. You did. You did. So I want to go back to Santeria a little bit. You know, in my family, when we have holiday parties, uh, we I always end up putting on Selena Gonzalez, the greatest voice, I think, of Cuba, in my opinion. But No yeah. argument here. I got drunk with her one time on her patio in Maria now and went to the little club <laughs> You're lucky, man. What a oh, voice. I was sitting next to her in Dos Cardenas when they called on her from the audience. She stood up, they passed her the mic, and she opened up as I was sitting right next to her. It was <laughs> one of the most exciting things. What a voice. That must have been something. It would raise the hair on the back of my neck. You know, and during those parties, we would all inevitably put on Santa Barbara, that yeah. incredibly yeah exactly um an infectious tune and she would grab a red handkerchief and run around and you know hit everybody with the handkerchief and some form of blessing you know and it's just part of our our parties you know and and you know for the uninitiated maybe you could say what's going on there with santa barbara being a female saint and then chango which is one of the better male pagan gods and they and how they they celebrated chango by using Santa Barbara. Why Santa Barbara and Chango are so connected? This is the phenomenon known as syncretization. It's a much discussed topic. And it's something that I think goes back throughout the history of religion, which is the mapping of the attributes of one religious practice onto another, I think would be a good definition. I strongly feel that the origin of this in Cuba comes from Central Africa, the Congo side. And now I got to make a parenthesis. I will unfortunately probably make more than one parenthesis because I'm a parenthetical kind of guy. But in all of the stops that we visited on the Tierra Sagrada tour, there would be up front a luxurious altar room set up to the Orishas, the deities of the Yoruba pantheon. It is said that when a Santero makes money, he or she buys something new for the altar. They make the altar as, as big and as lavish as they can within their means. But also out in back, there would be this funky little shed, dark dirt floor, in which there would be an iron pot, which is the nganga or prenda, where the Congo work is done. And pretty much every place we visited turned out to have both of those active. Hmm. So this is, we talk about these as separate line, historical lines, and they are separate lines of practice with their separate rules, but they converge 
in individuals. They converge in individual houses. So that's something to bear in mind is that this process has been going on for centuries. To me, what's remarkable is how distinct the practices have remained in spite of all the homogenizing tendencies of coexisting together in tight spaces. Meanwhile, this syncretization model was mapped onto the Yoruba Santos, both in Cuba and in Brazil. You see the same phenomenon in Brazil, where Yoruba were also brought, though the details are different. And so it is that every Orisha is mapped on to a Catholic saint, who, as you know, in these uh, saints were depicted with beatific statues with all their mystical attributes, which easily mapped on to the attributes of the Orishas. It was a way of seeming to worship the god of the master, while in reality continuing the ancestral practice. So that in the case you're talking about, Shango, the great warrior, the owner of drums and thunder, the greatest dancer, the uh, compulsive womanizer, comes fused with the image of the female Santa Barbara. Yes, there's something implicitly androgynous in this, and I'll leave it to gender theorists to sort it out more fully, but, uh, there is, but to say Santa Barbara, who appears with an axe, a hatchet, and Chango has an axe, okay? So Santa Barbara, whose colors are red and white, syncretized with Chango. Now, if you see a man in Cuba who is wearing, dressed in red and white, he's telling you something immediately. He's telling you that he is Chango. I, at this moment, although uh, Elegua is not my guardian angel, I am wearing red and black. I rather like to wear red and black. Those are Elegua's colors. Elegua is the, uh, the, the mischievous child who opens the pathway, who uh, opens the roads for you. And he's the one who is saluted first. But I also like to wear red and white for Chango. I like to wear yellow for my santo, who is Ochum. So by virtue of these abstractions, the Yoruba religion was very easily transferable to a new locale and to new conditions. But I argue the model for syncretism already was present in Cuba from the Bacongo. Yep, and we got a great song from Selena and Matillo. <laughs> Santa Barbara is what a wonderful song. Kick it. So, you know, right now I'm reading a book of called Jazz in the Underworld, The Danger of the Rhythms by mm -hmm. TJ English, you know, and I was wondering if you could comment about the, the club scene down there it was so awesome. I always say to my brother-in-law, if I was one time, I'd like to be transported back in time. I think that's where it would be. You know, I'd like to go and taste that because it was so, I mean, with Benny Murray and Perez Prada and all the different people coming from America. The, the, could you comment on the, on the relationship with the, you know, the underworld of the mobsters of America and Cuba and music? Well, as you may or may not know, we actually did a post-Mambo trip with TJ English based on his book, Havana Nocturne. We actually traveled. I led a group that traveled to Havana with TJ English. And we it was unlike any other trip we ever did. But we visited 
these significant uh, locations of the mob in Cuba, which in practice meant a lot of hotels. We stayed in the Riviera. We went to the Tropicana. We went to see the house where Lucky Luciano lived when he was in Cuba. When TJ was writing the book, we had a lot of conversations about this subject. So um, I feel very close to that particular story. You know, actually, the period that I would most have liked to have been present for was 10 years before that, which was during World War II, when Cuba was not a combatant. The dance bands played every single night all over the island they were jamming. And this was the period in which the modern Cuban music came into existence. Until the late 30s, it was forbidden to play a a tumbadora or what we call a conga drum in public, basically. Uh, These drums were not allowed into the finer places. In fact, in the 20s, at the height of the song, playing bongo uh, could get you thrown into jail if you didn't do it, you know, in the places where the poor people lived, because the people who played these drums were seen as delinquents. While the drum was permitted in Cuba, it was not permitted during the early decades of the American occupation of Cuba and the uh, and the neo-colonial republic. Why is that? Well, because the uh, United States uh, had, a, again, a largely Protestant country, and many of the functionaries who uh, administered Cuba for the United States were ex-Confederates, people who had fought for slavery. They saw this as the worst of the worst and as something that had to be suppressed. They had no sense of what Cuban culture was, of course, but to the extent that they saw a Cuban culture, they saw the whitest possible Cuban culture. You know, this was the peak of of post-Plessy versus Ferguson, Jim Crow being implanted in the United States, and that was translated to Cuba as well. So it wasn't until a popular uprising in the mid-30s that Cuba started to shake free from some of this, and it started to become possible to play these drums in a more public situation. And it was in the early 40s that Arsenio Rodriguez, the great fountainhead of Black Cuban music, I would argue the greatest Cuban musician of the century, uh, who created the prototype for the modern salsa band with his conjunto, which incorporated the tumbadora or conga drum. Uh, He modernized the son septet by adding a second trumpet, which required now an arrangement, a piano, which meant that the group was no longer mobile, but uh, stationary, and a bass player, uh, an upright bass player, which meant, although some groups were already using upright basses, uh, others were still using marimbulas, which was basically mbiras for the bass in the song. But Arsenio basically created this more modern kind of orchestra, I think under the influence of the jazz band, which was very popular in Cuba. And this was a period of great discovery and modernization in Cuban music. And it was, to me, the the if you want to pick an absolute golden era in the 20th century of Cuban music, it would be the 40s. The 50s was the golden age of the Cuban discography, to be sure. And it was certainly a it was a great time to be a musician in Havana. Uh, there was so much work because gambling wasn't illegal in Cuba. Uh, the gangsters who ran the casinos in Cuba were not criminals. In Cuba, they were doing something legal. Meyer Lansky was delighted not to be considered a criminal. Hmm. And these casinos threw off 
vast profits and part of what they paid for was lots and lots of musical entertainment to keep the customers at the casino as long as possible so they would play you know play as late as the customers wanted to gamble and they wouldn't the musicians wouldn't leave until the last gambler had left whether it was four in the morning or whenever and so you had this great era of big bands of people working and getting paid when that ended uh, with the Cuban Revolution, Bebo Valdez, for example, who left completely disenchanted with the new regime, said, you know, my my livelihood was playing for rich people who were gambling, and that was gone. And there was some cross-pollination, too, from bands coming down to Cuba from, like, Dizzy Gillespie. And- uh, Dizzy didn't come down until later. Dizzy worked with Chano Poso right. in 1947, which revolutionized jazz. The You think it was that what, significant? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, he, he died tragically, but, but he did have a lot of influence. He, he did indeed have a lot of influence, and it was consolidated by a wave of drummers who came in right behind him, of rumberos, people who played ceremonies, people like Carlos Patato Valdez, Francisco Aguabella, Julito Collazo, Candido Camero, others. I'm surely leaving names out, but there, this course. was a, and these people, these people revolutionized jazz. And the biggest of all, Mongo, who did more to consolidate the presence of the tumbadora or conga drum in the United States jazz band than anybody. Mongo's main audience after his hit with Watermelon Man in 1963, a Herbie Hancock song, Mongo's audience was African-Americans in jazz clubs. He didn't play for a Latin audience mostly. He played for African-Americans, did soul covers with uh, congas in the band. Those are pretty amazing records even that weren't, that were intended to be, you know, cheap, quick, you know, cover albums, you know, where Mongo would play Sex Machine or Cloud Nine, but they're great <laughs> records. Dig them out and listen to them. That's wild. Yeah. I want to go back for a minute to my two favorite Cuban musical heroes, and that would be the father and son, Bebo and Chucho, which could, well, bring, us, could bring us into uh, the modern times. I mean, I am just enamored with Chucho so much, but I've grown to love <laughs> Bebo too. But And he's pretty significant, I understand. I don't know. Maybe you could tell us a little bit so I could learn something about Bebo. Uh, and- Bebo and Chucho together, the shadow they cast dominates Cuban music for almost a century. I mean, Chucho, who is, let's see, he's 81 now, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll be he'll turn 81 on October the 9th. He was born on the same day as Bebo. Uh, really? Bebo's birthday. Yeah. I had the great good fortune to spend three days together with them in Barcelona. At the start of what would be Bebo's last concert tour, which was a duo concert tour with Chucho in Spain, of all the hair-raising concerts I've attended in my long life of music going, I would have to rank that up there at number one really? to see the dynamic between the two of them as they played on facing Steinways for however long it was that they played. Yeah, I love the, I love those duets on those recordings I've heard of them together. They made an album associated with that tour, which is the two of them together. But seeing them actually merge each other's energies on stage was phenomenal. Bebo 
And Chucho, I mean, Chucho was playing with his teacher. It was the one time, not counting accompanying singers, Chucho's a marvelous accompanist, but the one time instrumentally that I didn't see him dominate the room because he was playing with his teacher. And Bebo, Bebo's has a very different touch. Bebo had a soft touch. I think of him as a horizontal player. And they came out onto stage and Bebo had started playing already while Chucho was still adjusting his stool for the right height. Um, <laughs> they're both very tall. Big and, men, uh, yeah. They're both big men. And uh, Bebo was thinner and Chucho was broader, but they were both very tall. Chucho's way of playing after all those years in an electric band was tended to be more, I thought of it as more vertical, that, that he would hit the keys harder, more percussively. And to see the two of them come together doing something they had done all of Chucho's life, which is Bebo starts playing the opening to La Comparsa. La Cuona's La Comparsa, which is kind of the touchstone for piano literature in Cuba. Every conservatory student, whatever their instrument, is expected to be able to play it on a piano. Bebo, who was present at the creation of all of this modern Cuban music I was talking about from the 30s on, and if you want to hear fabulous recording, go to Julio Cuevas's uh, recording, the first recording of a, of a tune by Bebo, Rareza del Siglo, The Strangeness of the Century, which was incorporated modern notions of dissonance. This is in the mid-1940s, right? Mm -hmm. uh, modern notions of dissonance into a dance band in, with the opening Tumbao is alternating minor seconds and major sevenths, if you know what those are, but like the, mo the most dissonant intervals, right? It's one of the tunes, of course, that they played in their duo concert that I witnessed. But Bebo was there for so many things. There's a film, which you can see on uh, Vimeo, called Old Man Bebo by Carlos Carcas, a uh, Cuban director who fortunately managed to interview a lot of the key people in Bebo's story before they passed, as well as uh, Chucho and various of his other children. Uh, I highly recommend it. So, you know, we're jumping forward a little bit to the 70s and 80s and the sun and the uh, rumba were, you know, really popular and everything was like being mixed up and experimented and Chucho was involved in all that stuff too. What is your take on the influence of Chucho in that period, you know, where he was doing really heavy experimentation with Irakiri and that's fabulous band? Well, Chucho was the giant. I mean, there were various tendencies in Cuba, very strong tendencies in Cuban music, and post-revolutionary Cuban music was absolutely glorious. There were so many things that got going. A world was pulled down to the ground with the coming of the Cuban Revolution. Many people fled, uh, many people stayed, and it was for the first years after the triumph of the revolution, the music largely looked backward. That is to say, after a rupture, a great historical rupture, we reach back. We want to be reassured 
that things are somehow the way they were. Music is an important way of doing this. So Orquesta Aragón, one of the most popular bands in the 50s, mm-hmm. continued to be one of the most popular bands in the 60s. And for my money, they might have even been better in the 60s than they were in the 50s, though they were no longer on RCA Victor and only Cubans basically heard them as well as people in Africa, because they tu- they toured in Africa a lot, where they're very, very popular. Something that needs to be mentioned, by the way, is how influential Cuban music was on the course of 20th century African music, beginning in the 1930s and going forward, but we'll leave that for another conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, th- there were multiple tendencies going on. There was, of course, people who came up, who were coming of age in the early days after the revolution. La Lupe, who left very quickly. Peyo el Afrocan was probably the first new musical movement with his Mozambique. But by the end of the 60s, a new Cuban music was well under construction. There was the work of the Gres, the uh, Grupo Experimentación y Sonora, with most famous for... Pablo Milanes and Silvio Rodriguez, but also there were a number of jazz musicians who were part of that, who played with these musicians. It was a kind of a think tank for a formation of a new and very self-avowedly pro-revolutionary Cuban music. There was also Los Banban, which grew out of the uh, Elio Reves group. And Elio Reves group continues to this day, led by his son, Elito Reves, and is one of the great bands of Cuba. Reves Su Charangon. Van Van was uh, one of the great innovations. And there was Iraqueri, which uh, jumps off in 1973. Some people talk about, like, Van Van was the Beatles and Iraqueri was the Rolling. You know, I have to tell um, you that I went, I had a rum-soaked night with Los Bon Bon, <laughs> and it was a call response. It was almost religious experience. I've never had something so powerful musically and emotionally in one evening. That was just fantastic. Uh, yeah. The, it was that, great. That, I had about a hundred of those in, <laughs> in the 90s. I, it's what I did in the 90s. I spent a lot of time in the presence of Los Bon Bon, Inge La Banda and the Muñequitos of Matanzas, with whom I am still... And you probably uh, saw them really in their prime. I was seeing them on the slide down, but they were still powerful. Well, there was no slide. I wouldn't wouldn't say that. But to see them before a Havana audience uh, in the early 90s, when the whole world had turned its back on Cuba, when it was dark at night. Well, it wasn't great in for the Cubans because they were uh, they were suffering from scarcities sure. and uh, blackouts, but they had music. That's what I'm and, talking about. It was just the music and, I'm talking about. And the music, Cuban music during the special period really stepped up to the plate and delivered for the Cuban people. I think it kept them, I think people were almost surviving on music in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not the I don't know that that's the situation now. Things are very bad in Cuba now. What about this Buena Vista Social Club phenomena? You know, the, the going back and you know, getting all these old tunes and and all these great artists, and it was so popular here in the United States. It was it, ch- it changed, I think, some things in Cuba as well. I just hated it. It really drove me nuts. But I also try to be nuanced in my criticism. I didn't like the record. Don't like the music. Really didn't like the movie. Um, I thought the movie 
was patronizing and ill-informed. But I do think that the record was a great piece of record making. I think the musicians were treated fairly. You can't argue uh, with Compay Segundo coming out a winner. You really just can't argue with that. And I think that the great contribution of Buena Vista Social Club over the years was not even perhaps so much that it broke the cultural boycott of Cuba, which it did. It circumvented the cartel, which would not allow Cuban music to be played on American Latin radio by taking it to the world music audience. And I salute them for all that, even though I didn't like the record, right? Even though I could not listen to the record because it just sounded wrong to me. I think that the album achieved a lot that was good, but I think the greatest thing it achieved was that it broke the redlining against elders. At that time in the record business, if you were 40, your career was shot unless you were already a superstar. Nobody who looked even slightly old was gonna get a record deal. The music business was so blatantly ageist. I can't think of another case in which somebody in their late 80s, who was not a global superstar before, became one. It was really popular here. Yeah, where it was really popular was Germany. It was, Buena Vista Social Club was the number one record for four weeks. Wow. Not just on the world music charts, number one record in Germany for four weeks. A number I heard was six million. I don't know. That's a lot of damn records. You know, one other question I have for you is this this plethora of Cuban pianists that are all over the place now, you know, like Villafranca and Fonseca <laughs> and Nusa and Rodriguez. And I mean, is there yeah. something in the water down there? Or does this have something to do with the fact that they installed the Russian conservatory system in Cuba? I, I would say that of the hundred, if you, if you were able to name the hundred greatest musicians in the world, maybe 20 of them would be Cuban pianists. It is astounding. It the, is. And certainly all the ones you named, Elio Villafranca, who is a dear friend and whom I have collaborated I with him. in various musical projects. He's uh, been here twice. <laughs> I could name, you know, 15 more very easily. I'm sure you could. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, and every one of them is, is an astounding musician. I do think it had a lot to do with with two things, with the Cuban music education system, absolutely, unquestionably, uh, which predates the revolution, by the way, but certainly this, uh, this uh, conservatory system that they had going that all these people attended. I mean, you know, my friend Yosvani Terry, not a pianist, uh, although I suspect if he sat down at the piano, he'd he'd astonish you, but Ispani went to like conservatories in grade school, the stuff that, I, I mean, I have two degrees in music, the stuff I was learning in college, they learned in third grade, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, Harold Lopez Nusa, uh, who's, who went to conservatory, I think from when he was eight to when he was 23. I mean, to be able to devote all your time to that and to focus on it, it's just not something that is so easily done here. And also, these are musicians who came at a particularly conscious moment in history. In the early days after the revolution, there was a tendency to prohibit 
you know, you couldn't play jazz if you were going to conservatory. You couldn't play Cuban popular music. You weren't taught Cuban popular music. But by the time these folks came along in the 80s and 90s, this had relaxed and Cuban culture was asserting itself in such a great way that these people benefited from a phenomenal conservatory knowledge of what we badly call classical music, from a, an intense passion for jazz, true in all of their cases, uh, which they took had their very original takes on, their knowledge of Cuban popular music, and their knowledge of the sacred religious music of Cuba. And in particular, the Yoruba music, the music of the Bata, which is, this is not true of every single one of these piano virtuosos, but many of them are very knowledgeable about the music of the Yoruba religion, which is, for my money, the great treasury of African classical music conserved in the Americas as a jewel for the benefit of the whole world. Hmm. So, you know, the song seems to be still growing. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Do you think that it will continue to grow? What's your assessment of that? It will continue, very simply. Yeah, very good. And what about who you're a fan of? Who's on your radar? Who should we be looking at to to, to listen to? Hmm. Well, you know, I particularly have to salute the group that has meant the most to me. I think it's a group that I think has a great future, which is kind of odd since the group was founded uh, seventy years ago. Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, ah, yeah. um, which has is now on its, I don't know, fourth generation. But these young people are prepared. I say that, you know, you're not, you don't join the Muñequitos, you're born a Muñequito. And Matanzas is the great transmitter of the African cultures in Cuba, the great mm. transmitter of the African religions. And Matanzas is a place where the Wawanko and the Danson were both invented in the same barrio, basically, in the same area of part of town. And it's developed in situ ever since. These communities still exist in the same places where the rumba grew up and attained maturity. So it's not like anything else you will ever encounter. And so uh, how about Sima Funk? Uh, I love Sima. I mean, you know, he's what's not to like? <laughs> yep, I saw him recently. It's, yeah, he's fun. So my brother-in-law has a question for you. At the end of your book, the Cuban and his music, you say you got to go, you know, it ends in the 50s. Is the new book coming that kind of finish it all off? No. Okay, so disappointed. Uh, I, well, you got to ask me what I'm doing now. Yeah, that's, that's the next question. Yeah, I, uh, I, you know, I basically stopped writing books and, uh, after we published the American Slave Coast. And I, that was, of course, contemporaneous with the Obama boom in Cuba, the Obama changes that were dropped like a thunderbolt out of the blue on um, December 17th, uh, 2014. And so many people wanted me to take them to Cuba that I started a company to do it post mambo studies nice. and i've been i've been involved in music immersion travel ever since at this point we're not going to cuba because things are so bad there but we just got back from a mind-blowing trip in colombia 
uh, to the Pacific region, and we're going to New Orleans February 1st through the 6th. Where can they find you if uh, they want to go? There is no website. Email is the only way. Info at postmambo, P-O-S-T-M-A-M-B-O dot com. Very good. Ned Sublet, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's been really illuminating. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Kevin. It's great talking to my people in Bridgeport. (laughs) 